from the campuses of East Tennessee State University in Johnson City, Tennessee, and Emory and Henry College in Emory, Virginia. This is Religion for Life. I'm John Schuck. I'm the minister of the First Presbyterian Church of Elizabethton, Tennessee. This program, Religion for Life, explores the intersection of religion, social justice, sexuality, science, public life. It's all religious. Even persecution. Many Christians today feel that they are being persecuted, just like those early believers in the New Testament. Christians like Phil Robertson of Duck Dynasty. Who is being discriminated against here except Phil Robertson, who just lost a job because of his religious beliefs? The rhetoric of persecution is alive and well. The problem is, of course, that sometimes it really isn't persecution. And what it does is that it makes a mockery of real persecution of people all over the globe. In the studio with me today is Travis Williams. He's the assistant professor of religion at Tusculum College in Greenville, Tennessee. His scholarly work focuses on the document in the New Testament called 1 Peter, which is about persecution. What was persecution in the first century, and how do we rightly, legitimately interpret that text today? Professor Williams is going to be the theologian in residence at Tusculum College on the first, second, third, and fourth Tuesdays in February, and he will be discussing persecution in First Peter. This series of lectures is free and open to the public, and it includes lunch, but you do have to register, and you can find information on how to do that at religionforlife.com. Travis Williams is my guest. And he is the author of a couple of scholarly books. Uh, first is Persecution in First Peter, Differentiating and Contextualizing Early Christian Suffering, and Good Works in First Peter, Negotiating Social Conflict and Christian Identity in the Greco-Roman World. And he will be talking about persecution and the social context of that uh, in the two in the four series of lectures at Tusculum College. Um, Welcome, uh, Travis, to Religion for Life. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Well, tell us about First Peter. Uh, it wasn't written by Peter, was it? Well, m most scholars um, today don't think that. Um, most recognize that this is a, um, a pseudonym. Peter is, is, is the name that's used, um, even though he's not actually the author of the letter. Um, most would put this, um, the letter, the date to about 70 to 90 CE, so long or shortly thereafter, um, Peter's death, um, probably in the mid-60s. Um, the letter is written to a group of churches, so a, a large number of churches in what we call Asia Minor, um, which is modern Turkey. Um, and the letter addresses a problem um, for these readers, which is um, persecution. These, these readers are facing some kind of suffering, hostility um, from their friends, their neighbors, um, and it seems like that's based on um, something that they're doing, something about Christianity um, that either rubs someone the wrong way um, or there might be some other issues. But the letter is, is written to respond to that and give these readers um, a way to react um, and a way to um, understand what they're going through. So 70 to 90, so that would be after Paul's letters. There, there seems to be a, a similarity uh, in First Peter to the letters of Paul. Uh, a lot of the theology is, is similar. Is there, is there, would it be, would you say, in the same school of thought? It, it is. It is. And actually, um, many see um, some type of um, dependence, maybe even literary dependence on, for example, the letter of the Romans. Um, mm. If 
First Peter was written in Rome, which many many think, um, then it would be natural. Um, there's also maybe some dependence on the letter to the Ephesians, um, which is a Deutero-Pauline, not by Paul. Um, so uh, it seems like there is a, a Pauline flavor there um, to the letter. Can you give an overview of this letter's theology then? Sure. It seems like the, the, whole, the whole purpose of, of 1 Peter is to construct a new identity. So in, in many ways, it's theological. Um, in many ways, it, it tells them what they should believe, um, both about salvation, about themselves, about God, about Christ. Um, but it's also, um, and I would say even more importantly, um, very sociological. Um, it's trying to give them, uh, trying to build from that theology a way to respond, a way to react. Um, and in that way, they're, they're viewed as a new people. They're, they're given dignity um, in, this, in this malign state that they're in, in this undignified, uh, persecuted state. Um, the author tries to, to give them a new identity and say, um, you are privileged, you are honored in this new relationship with Christ. Um, and in that way, he's trying to give them a way to um, positively um, understand and, and act on their disadvantage. Let's talk about that persecution. Chapter 1, verse 6, greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. So what have biblical scholars and historians thought these trials were, and, and what do you say? Okay, that's a good question. Um, there, there's a fairly well-established consensus in both Petrine studies and in, in New Testament studies in general. Um, that the persecution that these Christians are facing um, is an unofficial persecution, um, meaning that this is not an empire-wide program where the Romans um, were actively pursuing members of the Christian faith because the, the, the religion had become illegal. It was outlawed. Instead, um, what they describe as unofficial persecution is more informal popular hostility um, coming from the general populace um, shown to Christians. Um, characteristics of this might be um, it's, it's localized. This is not um, spread across a, a large distance. It's, it might affect one group, but not another. Um, it's sporadic, meaning it's, it's, it's an, only an occasional threat um, if it does arise. Um, it's usually verbal abuse. That's, that's a big concentration. Um, there's not very much threat of escalated conflict, which is you know, death, um, those kind of things. Um, that's the way that most you know, most scholars understand First Peter. Okay. Would you go with that consensus, or would you say there's something different? Well, the purpose the purpose of the first book, persecution in First Peter, um, was really to challenge that. The problem that I had with with this consensus is is twofold. Um, one is I don't think that. Um, this this perspective really contextualizes, properly contextualizes the nature of conflict. Um, usually commentators and scholars will say it either has to be unofficial, which I just described, or it has to be official, um, which is, of mm -hmm. course, Romans chasing you down and killing. Um, but I think that by doing it that way, it's very unnuanced. It doesn't capture... Um, either the, what we find in the historical evidence um, or um, some of the things like the Roman legal system and, and um, the legal status of Christians by separating um, prosecution of Christians in the courtrooms, the legal status, by separating that from the general hostility that people showed to Christianity, I think that's a, that's a problem. One of the problems that the consensus does not deal with. But the other thing, that, the other problem I have with that is um, by doing that, it leaves us with a very undifferentiated unity behind the suffering. 
So most books you'll read say um, the audience was suffering either persecution or hostility or, or however they describe it. Um, but few people actually differentiate the experiences of those in the communities. So um, the purpose of the book was to try to see how various um, social groups might experience suffering differently. Um, for example, um, how might the experience of a slave who had little to no recourse to, um, to, to do anything but accept the abuse, um, how might their experience differ from a free merchant who has a small business? Um, or how might that differ from a, a woman um, who is married to a non-believer and her experience in, in her persecution? So the purpose of it was both to contextualize using ancient historical evidence, but also to differentiate what that experience might mean for individuals in the communities. What, what evidence is there for any Christians being persecuted at all? Okay, good, good question. Um, after following the persecution of Nero, which of course everybody realizes there, there, there is Nero killed Christians, mm -hmm. um, whether it was through the fire in 64, um, there's some debate, um, but he killed Christians. Um, and after this point, I argue that, that this, was, this was a turning point for Christianity because after this point, um, this established a precedent. Now, it didn't establish any laws. There was, there was no law in the books that said Christianity was illegal. Um, but I argue that, that Nero's persecution established a precedent by which Christianity was treated as though it were illegal. And I, I've, I've stolen a phrase from uh, my PhD supervisor, David Horrell, um, that it's effectively illegal. Christianity was effectively illegal, which um, meant simply that it was this contradictory legal status wherein there were no laws against it, but a person could be tried and killed simply for being a Christian. And this is what we find, um, and, most, and most scholars recognize this in the 2nd century, the 3rd century, um, where you have Christians being taken um, to a Roman provincial court. And when, a good example, of course, is, is Pliny, Pliny the, the Younger. Christians taken to court and charged simply as Christians, and the, and the governor finding no other fault except you are Christians, um, and then being killed for that. Now, um, what I argue, though, is... It, it wasn't just with Pliny in the second century or, or Polycarp or any number of martyrs there listed. I argue that this started with Nero. So Nero um, established a precedent whereby um, the people and the governors both um, looked at Christians and treated them um, differently in some cases. And what that, what that amounted to is if a Roman governor was sent out to the province, um, uh, he might be more prone um, to... Uh, accept a case, um, try a case, and charge Christians as Christians um, based on what we see with, with Nero. Um, and so it, it created this uh, uh, somewhat more escalated situation for Christians um, than what had been. What is it that was a threat that Christians posed then to the Roman Empire? I mean, as I think of the Roman Empire, they didn't care about various superstitions, as they would say it, I mean, or, or various religions, as long as you did the cult of the empire, perhaps participated in the military. Mm -hmm. In the book, I try to diagnose a few different causes. What, what was leading to this, this suffering and this conflict with outsiders? Um, uh, one of those was the non-participation in, in basic social institutions. Um, they might pull out of their voluntary association, let's say. They might refuse to worship the emperor. Um, they might not attend um, the Roman uh, games and so forth. So that, that may have irked some. Um, this anti-social group, it seemed. Um, mm -hmm. And eventually Christians were um, labeled as, as deviants. And, and with that, of course, comes whatever you do after that. Once you're labeled, then, of course, anything that you do is, whether it's 
good or bad. It could be seen in a negative light. Um, but the big problem that I found was the worship of the traditional gods. And here's the reason. Um, if you were a, a Christian living in, in you know, an average city in the, the Roman world, um, it, for us it might not seem like a big deal if, you know, which God did you worship and which God I worship, that, that is irrelevant. Mm-hmm. Um, how, I, how I worship might not affect you. But for them, it was a big deal. Um, and the big deal was what I did impacted you because we were connected in a civic community. So that if I refused to worship the gods, um, the gods would not just refuse to rain on my crops, but because we're connected, he refused to rain the crops of the whole city. And so what I do impacts you in, in a lot of ways. That was, that was the big deal. Um, and, and so we have, we have evidence of, of um, in some cases, non-Christians breaking into uh, Christian meetings and trying to force them to worship the gods just just to perform the sacrifice um, because it was that big it was that important um, for their livelihood in some cases when you talk about Christianity I mean even the word Christianity it might be anachronistic because they're still participating in this religion of, of the parent religion of which becomes Judaism and of course Jews have a real conflict with Rome and so some of that is negotiating for First Peter's community how they understand their relationship also with their Jewish heritage, isn't it? Sure. Um, and it's interesting because you see in First Peter um, an interesting dynamic, a change, a shift, um, especially in this use of uh, Christianos, which is the word we use for Christians. Um, the, the letter of First Peter is one of the earliest attestations of this Greek word, this Greek name that Christians later adopted. They didn't originally call themselves Christianoi. Um, what they what it was is actually a, a derogatory designation. Um, I think starting from Roman officials, um, probably in a, maybe mm-hmm. a courtroom setting, um, and so it was a designation of in some cases deviance that was turned on its head by this early Christian author. So he takes this designation and flips it um, and turns it from a a, um, a designation of deviance into a badge of honor. Um, you need to own this designation. And we see this today, of course, like the word queer or, mm-hmm. or the slogan, black is beautiful. Um, it's an exercise in social creativity um, where, where it's changed into a badge of honor. Um, and in doing this, he tries to get his audience to embrace this stigmatized designation. Um, the other thing with that um, is how they how they are, they're breaking um, how how the, the separation from Judaism, like you mentioned, is taking place. Um, because what the author does is he has a number of epithets and designations that are commonly used um, in the Hebrew Bible for the Jews um, and for ancient Israel, um, and he takes those and applies them to this mostly Gentile audience, Gentile readership. Um, and in doing that, um, he, he gives an, a new identity, but he almost, in a sense, he steals the identity of ancient Israel and applies it to his, to his audience, which is an interesting move on his part. My guest, if you're just joining us on Religion for Life, is Travis Williams. He's the assistant professor of religion at Tusculum College and the author of two scholarly books on Peter. One you've just completed um, called Good Works in First Peter, Negotiating Social Conflict and Christian Identity in the Greco-Roman World, and Persecution in First Peter, Differentiating and Contextualizing Early Christian Suffering. He is going to be the theologian in residence at Tusculum College speaking about uh, First Peter, its persecution, and how rhetorically uh, the author of First Peter uh, invites people to respond to it, and that's the fascinating part. And and that the part of that rhetoric is what you just talked about of um, 
taking a, a, a name in which is derogatory and turning it on its head to give people a sense of positive identity of who they are. And the other part is, 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 is interesting because I, it looks like it's kind of oppressive language. Slaves, be obedient to your masters. Women, be submissive to your husbands. Honor the emperor, even though the emperor apparently is enemy or the empire as such. So how does that work? How is that liberating? Um, well, in some sense, it is not. I mean, okay. uh, for, our, for our modern years, of course, it sounds very oppressive. Um, but we have to understand the nature of the situation that we're dealing with. Um, we can't go into the text immediately and, and draw out, the, situa or draw out the, the language and then immediately apply it to today, as many people do. Um, what we have to understand is um, the, the situation of First Peter um, was uh, one of a, a marginalized and subaltern group who, who is in a very disadvantaged situation. Um, many of these, these readers would probably be slaves um, or um, lower status people with, with not very many recourse to, um, to um, unfettered action. And so in that way, the author calls them to, in many ways, to um, conform or accommodate certain social expectations um, in that world so that slaves would um, obey their masters. Um, what else could they do um, in some cases? Um, wives were to be subject to their husbands. Um, that's what the letter says. Um, so in many ways, um, this, is, um, this is standard. This is, this is accommodating. But what's interesting about First Peter is, is the way that First Peter um, adds resistance um, in the midst of accommodation. Um, so yeah. that, here's an example. Um, in the same time that he tells his readers to honor the emperor, he calls the emperor uh, a human creature. Which is which is an interesting designation. You didn't because the hear, emperor is God. The right? emperor, the, son the of emperor God. is the son of God. Um, so um, you you don't use that designation for the emperor very often. And, but he does it to remind his readers, I think, of um, the fact that the emperor is no different than you or I. He is a human creature created by God. Um, and um, the other way he does this is is interesting. In chapter two, verse seventeen, um, he tells them to honor the emperor and to fear God. Um, by setting those two in opposition, it's, it's, it's very interesting. Um, although the emperor is to be honored, he is not God in the sense that he should be feared. Um, those, that's an that's a interesting change that he makes to that quote from the book of Proverbs. So there's a couple of ways. Another example might be um, the instructions to slaves and wives. Mm -hmm. Yes, he tells them to be obedient to, to um, their masters, to their husbands, but he never asks them to give up their religious freedom which is very interesting. He, he could have said, you know, conform in every way um, to your husband's wishes or to your master's wishes, wishes um, which meant, could have meant um, uh, sacrifice um, in the same way that he does, worship his gods, because that was prescribed um, among many Hellenistic moralists. Um, but what he says is, is not that at all. He, he says, be obedient, but he never gives in um, to, that, to that religious pressure. Um, never are they called to um, give up their devotion to God and worship different gods. And that's, that's a very interesting um, thing that he does, is, is maintain that religious freedom of this group. Um, what it seems like is this is an example of um, what, what some have described as of everyday, more peasant-type resistance. So it's, it's kind of having to kind of play along to get along, but at the same time, what you're really doing is discovering your own independence, your own liberation. It's resisting in, in as far as a person can. 
in the yeah, same way okay. that a, a peasant might um, drag their feet, um, feign ignorance, um, lie to their master. Um, those are the kind of things that we're dealing with. It's, it's not open rebellion. There wasn't, there wasn't right. space for that. Um, it, it is a very, uh, very uh, much more cautious uh, type of resistance, but resistance nonetheless. We're looking at First Peter, but we're not just looking at it academically. You are as a scholar, but we have actually contemporary uses for this language and this scripture okay. and this rhetoric and 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 in interpretation, um, uh, kind of rhetorical ammunition for this constant thing of well, we're being persecuted by secular humanist society, and and I kind of wonder if there's a um, there's a difference between being persecuted and having people disagree with you. <laughs> and is there a legitimate place uh, from which we can read this text and, and an illegitimate place? I mean, there's something illegitimate to me, I'll just put it that way, about reading persecution-type literature when you're making millions of bucks and somebody just didn't say Merry sure, Christmas to you. Sure, sure. Is this um, an applicable strategy for today? Is this is this one that we want to necessarily follow? Um, I, I think that we have to take this with a grain of salt. I think we have to realize this is a very different situation than what we find um, in you know in modern American society. Um, so we have to recognize the limitations of the strategy the author is giving. Um, most of us aren't in a disadvantaged situation where we're maligned and mistreated by, uh, and, and as slaves. Um, and, and I think that this is, this is important. Um, and of course, um, you have, um, some of the modern works that have come out like Canada Moss's, uh, the myth of persecution. Yeah. You have, you have works like this that have, that have really challenged this idea. Um, and, you know, it, it, it's an important, it's an, something important to do, um, I think that I think that we have to start with um, what was going on back then. We have mm -hmm. we have to really establish um, what was the nature of persecution. How do we f define persecution? What was their experience? What was their differentiated experience in some cases? Um, and, and the problem is that most don't do that. Most just apply take the the persecution, the suffering language from the text, um, rip it out there, and then, then apply it to them li their lives um, to create some kind of association um, between themselves and, and you know, the ancient figures. Um, I think it's very important to, to start from the beginning, though. You mentioned uh, Canada Moss, who was a guest on this program, and, and her uh, book a, a year or so ago is called The Myth of Persecution, um, in terms of how Christians uh, overemphasized the idea of historical persecution. What, what do you make of, of the... Do you see yourself in, in that line or do you see yourself a little bit different? Well, I would put myself in a, a little bit different category. I think that we have um, different stress and different purposes and then that creates the difference in a lot of cases. Canada Moss is is one of the leading experts, if not the leading expert, on early Christian martyrdom um, and martyrdom accounts. And so when she speaks on a subject like this, of course, the, you know, we should listen. And I would agree with her that... Um, Escalated persecution of Christians, meaning um, death, um, the killing of Christians, was sporadic. Um, it wasn't a mm -hmm. constant thing where Christians were taken to court and, and tried and killed. That, that, that didn't happen. Um, of course, I would, I would want to qualify it some by saying that you know, we can't quantify the number of early martyrs. Uh, it would be difficult to say that there were hundreds or thousands because we just don't know. The evidence, uh -huh. um, in some cases, has been lost. It's not been recorded. We don't know. Um, the second thing that Secondly, I would agree it would be, I agree that there, the active um, governmental pursuit, the seeking out of Christians, um, was rare. Um, yes, um, it happened with Nero. Yes, it happened 
Diocletian. Um, but um, we can't say that it, that the government was not involved at all. Um, I would want to qualify that and say the governor could take an active role if private citizens made an accusation against Christians. That, that's an important distinction. Now, the way that I would, I guess, disagree most with, with her treatment will be this. She defines persecution as the deliberate targeting or seeking out of, of another group, um, in this case for the religious beliefs. Um, and she distinguishes that from prosecution. Now, um, I, I don't know if that's a, a really good distinction to make in the Roman world, given their legal system. Um, she says that, that nonviolent persecution doesn't really count in the scholarly uh, appraisals of persecution. Um, but I don't know if that we should discount that altogether. Um, a recent book um, by Paul Holloway um, called Coping with Prejudice, um, it's, it's about First Peter, um, who describes the, the constant and destructive um, undercurrent that social prejudice has um, in the life of people and in First Peter specifically. I think that's an important um, point to note. We can't make a, a, a narrow definition and then assume that um, persecution doesn't fall into that, that definition. That's, that's problematic. Um, the second thing, though, mm. is just because there were, weren't any laws on the books against Christianity, that ruling them, making them illegal, um, it does not mean that, that they weren't treated as such. Um, we can't say that, um, that there, it wasn't, there weren't a lot of escalated situations. Um, because the uniform testimony of the ancient Christians, whether it's reliable or not, it seems to be that, that Christians could be taken to court, tried, and killed just for their Christian confession. Um, and given the nature of the Roman judicial system, um, which was accusatorial, gave the governor power both to, to kill and to pardon, um, that, that seemed to be the ingredients where Christians could be tried and killed um, simply for being Christians. I think that um, our two... Um, contributions, um, a lot of the differences come from a different stress, um, given our different audiences and different purposes. She is wanting to to point out to more of a general audience um, the occasional nature of persecution um, and escalated conflict. It just simply wasn't there. Um, and this is something that I guess is, is important to stress to a popular audience. But it's just as important, I think, uh, for my purposes, to stress to a more, more of an academic type audience that um, this was a very serious situation. Um, the fact that Christians could be at any moment um, taken to court um, and charged as Christians and be killed for that um, should give us some reason to pause and say this is, this is a, a major threat. Um, this is not something that can be taken very lightly. And I, I think that's a, a different focus that I have maybe than she does not. But I can also see how this could be a text even today for those who are legitimately suffering uh, in some sense of persecution, that they could that they could find within this text a, a sense and a strategy of of own, like the very top when you said um, using the words against you as a word of pride, um, not being defined by the way they define you, the, the opponents, but finding your own identity, and and being able to participate in your own integrity, even in the midst of that. That's with 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 the hope that someday uh, that will be rewarded and, and positive change will come. Right. Um, the, the book of First Peter actually is, is very popular in, in quote-unquote third world countries. Okay. Um, so they, they would read the text differently. And I think in, in many ways that their experience would be more applicable to what's going on um, in this letter because you have a very much of a, more of a carryover um, between the two, between their situation um, and what was taking place in First Peter.
Professor Travis Williams has been my guest on Religion for Life. Dr. Williams, thank you for being with me and for your work. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Travis Williams will be the theologian in residence at Tusculum College every Tuesday in February from 10 until 2. The lecture includes a free lunch. You just need to register. Find information about how to do that at religionforlife.com. Religion for Life is co-produced by WETS-FM in Johnson City, Tennessee, and WEHC-FM in Emory, Virginia. I'm John Shuck, minister at First Presbyterian Church of Elizabethton, Tennessee. Our website is fpcelizabethton.org. Be well.